It's Friday, January 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Joe Biden has a singular focus in his first few days in office to get the coronavirus pandemic under control. He has signed 10 executive orders aimed at accelerating the rollout of vaccines by using the Defense Production Act, supporting state and local governments to help with their responses, mandating mask wearing, and restoring faith in the government. Will Fewer, health and science reporter at CNBC, joins us for the Biden COVID plan. Next, a study of nursing home residents found that a monoclonal antibody treatment made by Eli Lilly can cut the risk of COVID-19 by up to 80%. It is important to catch people at the early stages of infection and is meant for those that are high-risk patients. One of the difficulties in administering these drugs, however, is that it's delivered via an hour-long infusion. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for more. Finally, now that Joe Biden is president, what's left for QAnon conspiracy theorists and the extreme faction of President Trump's base? As it became clear that there was no storm coming and that Trump would not remain in power, conspiracy-minded online chat groups turned to anger, denial, disappointment, and even turned on each other. Tina Wynn, political reporter at Politico, joins us for how these groups reacted to the storm that never came. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I'm calling for the enforcement of a more stringent worker safety standards so that you are better protected from this virus while you have to continue to work to protect the rest of us. Joining us now is Will Fewer, health and science reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Will. Thanks for having me. President Joe Biden is getting right into action when it comes to coronavirus and his first full day. He signed 10 executive orders related to the COVID pandemic. He's pledged to get out 100 million doses of vaccine in his first 100 days. He wants to use the Defense Production Act to ramp up production of whatever we need, vaccine materials or a PPE, things like that. Will, tell us a little bit about these executive orders that President Biden has signed. So like you mentioned, it's 10 total. Some of the highlights here are he's establishing a federal panel to introduce more COVID-19 diagnostic tests to the market. And he really wants to ramp up COVID-19 testing that's available. Uh, he's putting in some place some more restrictions, like requiring masks in airports, trains, inner city buses, and really all modes of transportation. Directing agencies, like you said, to bolster the supply chain through the use of the Defense Production Act, uh, which is a wartime measure that you know the president can use to compel U.S. companies to prioritize manufacturing that is deemed crucial to security. He's also introducing the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force, which is just a real signal that he's going to emphasize equity here. And that really, uh, we're still working through the details of exactly what these things are going to do. He just put out the full 200-page plan about an hour ago. So still working through the details, but obviously the message there is that panel is going to be responsible for making sure that resources are allocated based on which communities have been impacted the most by the pandemic. Now, some of the reporting that we had been seeing was that the administration came in and there was really no coronavirus vaccine distribution plan from the Trump administration. So in a lot of respects, they're going to have to start from scratch. Obviously, from the Trump administration, we had Operation Warp Speed, which in a sense was a huge success. We got two vaccines out of that. But the distribution and all that stuff really stopped when it was sent out to the states. From there, the states had to do a lot of their own planning and distribution from that. So one of these other executive orders that the president signed had to do a lot with state and local support and really helping kind of guide Mm -hmm. them into distributing the vaccines. There were reports today, you know, about how the 
Biden administration was really starting from scratch. I don't know how fair that is. Dr. Tony Fauci was out today at the White House press briefing saying that obviously they're not starting completely from scratch. Right. Uh, we have administered about 16 million doses. So there is something in place. But today, you know, when I spoke with local health officials across the country, certainly the level of support they're now seeing and the guidance that they expect to get from the federal government on how to administer doses, on what kind of allocations they're getting, on what to tell their people and their hospitals and pharmacies, clearly there's a stepped up level of involvement from the federal government here that has been absent throughout not just the vaccine distribution and rollout, but throughout all realms of the pandemic under the Trump administration. One of the other things, too, is, you know, we've heard a lot about these mask mandates and whatnot. We heard a little bit about it on day one of the Biden presidency, too. But he did sign an executive order asking uh, or requiring people to wear masks on federal property. But also when it comes to transportation, too, he wants people to wear masks pretty much all the time. So it's not clear exactly which modes of transportation this is going to apply to. He said many. I believe the wording in the order was actually many trains, buses, aircrafts and inner city buses. But I think it's safe to assume that's going to be most modes of public transportation. So he is requiring people to wear masks and practice social distancing in those kinds of environments. And for international travel, really notably, the CDC has been pushing for this for a long time, that he is now requiring incoming travelers to test negative for COVID-19 or to self-quarantine and self-isolate upon arrival in the U.S. Reopening schools and businesses. Obviously, mm. schools has been such a huge component of all of this. We saw schools open and shut down almost immediately in a lot of cases. Some schools remained open the entire time, but this is a key priority for the Biden administration also. As they're rolling out the vaccine, as they're encouraging people to follow public health precautions, they are working actively to reopen schools, reopen businesses, and reopen travel as well, but only to do so safely. And so one really interesting thing they're doing here is they are requiring the Department of Health and Human Services to collect data on school reopenings and to really figure out what we know and what we don't know about the role that schools play in spreading COVID-19 in communities. And that's interesting because that's something that hasn't been done so far in the U.S. and really has, has only been done in a very limited fashion in other countries as well. So we still don't really know how much of the virus spreads in schools and how much of that virus is brought from schools then out back into the community and vice versa. So it'll be interesting to see what we get from these studies. We're also seeing that, you know, President Biden is already getting a little bit of pushback on his COVID relief plan. It clocks in at, uh, I think, $1.9 trillion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's already some Republicans opposing to it, saying, is there really need for another bill? We just passed one. For the Biden administration, they're saying, you know, hell yes, we need a lot more, including more direct payments to Americans. So this is kind of, you know, the fight that's setting up. The margins are very narrow in the House and the Senate. The money is, it's a lot of money. And like always, you know, someone has to pay for it. So it, he's asking for the COVID relief bill right now, I think stands at $1.9 trillion. Whether he gets that through, it looks unlikely, I think, at this moment. And I do think that, you know, he's setting himself up to have some negotiating room here. One thing, for example, I know my colleagues today, Tom Frank and Jacob Framick uh, at CNBC, they reported today that potentially he's using uh, that initial plan includes $2,000 direct payments to Americans. And there's nothing that's really tying him to $2,000. And in fact, it was former President Donald Trump who actually pushed for that $2,000 direct payment. So that could potentially be one lever to pull in the negotiations with the Republicans saying, well, do we really need $2,000 here? That's one way to bring the $1.9 trillion figure down. Will Fewer, health and science reporter at CNBC, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Oscar.
a goodbye. We love you. We will be back in some form. Joining us now is Tina Wynn, political reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Tina. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of anger, denial, disappointment among the QAnon followers and followers of President Trump and, you know, the most kind of extreme factions of his base. They were getting ready for a storm, as they called it. They were getting ready for mass arrests of Antifa people, mass arrests of elected officials and for President Trump to remain in power. And uh, we, as we know, Joe Biden has been inaugurated the 46th president. None of that happened. President Trump left to Mar-a-Lago. And what do all these people do? It's a curious question. I'm fascinated by people that go down these conspiracy theory holes. And then when things don't pan out for them, there's nothing left. What do they do next? So, Tina, tell us a little bit about it. The way that one can look at QAnon is as if it's almost a religious cult in a way. One of the things I keep hearkening back to are studies of cults that have gone through these apocalyptic moments and said, okay, the end of the world is coming today. No, it's going to come this day. It's going to come this day. And so much of the QAnon mythos has been predicated on Trump being able to exercise all of these powers of the presidency in order to make the storm happen. And the fact that he didn't, and the fact that he just ignored this crowd and went off to Florida and gave and surrendered everything that he could have done to make the storm happen, that is throwing them into this crisis of faith. You could literally watch them counting down the minutes to um, when Biden would be inaugurated because they thought, okay, at noon, the storm has to happen because that is when Trump still is president. And as the hours went by, you could see people like trying to find little clues and hints as to whether the storm was taking place. And then he didn't do the storm. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, like, and, and you can see, you know, there's a lot of groups that uh, assemble online on uh, places like Gab and Telegram and whatnot. And you're right, they were kind of watching this in real time and expressing that kind of disbelief and that anger saying, hey, when is it happening? It's not happening now. What do we do now? Even some of the supposed leaders in the QAnon set even said something after that, you know, like, hey, it's time to wrap it up and go back to your normal lives. And, you know, these right. people that had believed this for so long felt betrayed, let's say, by many people, by President Trump himself and, you know, Q himself, I guess. Right. The guy who you just mentioned, if there is any actual influencer in the QAnon world, it would be Ron Watkins, who was the administrator of the board that hosted all of the official Q drops, as they call him, all the cryptic messages. There is a lot of theories that Ron Watkins himself is Q, who's just pretending to be this secret government official. That hasn't been definitively proven yet, but for him to say, okay, everyone, let's pack it in, we're done. QAnon was really the friends we made along the way. That is probably the most definitive sign to this movement that it's not really going anywhere and that the party is over. That does not, however, stop them from having magical thinking or from admitting that everything they'd been pulled through was actually a con. A lot of experts that look into groups like these say that a lot of times there's like three different ways you can go when you're involved in something like this. So you can become disillusioned and kind of just exit the movement. Other groups, uh, you know, keep plugging away and keep kind of believing in the plan or the next phase of it. And then other people that lose faith in the system and then try to take matters into their own hands. And this is where people get really worried about what happens next with this group. What do they do? Mm -hmm. Do they do things like storm the Capitol again, et cetera? 
There's actually been a growing trend in militia communities. The groups of people like the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, Oath Keepers, the guys who planned the insurrection in the Capitol, they have total disdain for QAnon believers and call them kind of foolish. But for months, maybe, and definitely over the past week or so, they've kind of anticipated that Joe Biden will be president and their playbooks circulating around these communities of how they can take advantage of these completely disaffected people in a crisis of faith and pull them into their own militant groups. Because ultimately, the thing these all share in common is a sense of grievance against a amorphous blob of an elite. And the only solution is to get rid of it. Now, QAnon believed fervently that someone else was going to do it. And militia groups believe, okay, no, we've got to take it into our own hands because the government failed us. So expect to see a lot of overlap in those two spheres in the coming future. You know, a lot of these believers were turning on President Trump himself saying, you know, he didn't do his part, his job or anything. What does this do for any support that they might still have for him? You know, the president doesn't want to go away. He's hoping to come back possibly in four years. He doesn't want to lose grip on the Republican Party that he has right now. What does this mean for all that? It's really too early to say what Donald Trump's presence will do for these groups, specifically because as he was walking out the door, he did not do anything concrete for this movement. The big one was pardons. He didn't give any pardons to people who were pure MAGA. Instead, he was giving them to cronies of his who were in jail for fraud. Um, Literally the most swampy people actually one could think of. So that's actually really hardened militias against him. That's hardened Joe Exotic, the Tiger King against him. (laughs) Right. Tina Wynn, political reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. This monoclonal antibody, when given early in disease or even before there is evidence of disease, does seem to have a a substantial effect to protecting people from advancing into more serious disease. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. We're getting good news out of drug company Eli Lilly about a monoclonal antibody treatment that they have. It's been out for a bit, but they just were doing some studies with it, and they found out that it does reduce the risk of developing symptomatic COVID-19 among nursing home residents. So Karen, tell us a little bit about this study and what we're finding out. So as we know, sadly, people in nursing homes are the most vulnerable to this virus. They're in congregate settings, they're near other people, so they're likely to catch it if it gets into the nursing home. And something like 40% of the deaths so far have been in in vulnerable elderly people. So we know this is a particularly at-risk population. This monoclonal antibody, when given early in disease or even before there is evidence of disease, does seem to have a a substantial effect to protecting people from advancing into more serious disease. So the most at-risk people are helped by this drug. Now, one of the problems with this is that there's difficulty in administering it. You know, it's like an hour-long infusion. So that kind of poses a problem, at least logistically. Again, if somebody has early-stage COVID and is at risk, they're probably shedding a lot of virus and they're extremely contagious. And so you don't want to put that person in, say, a dialysis center, which is used to giving out infusions, but also has a lot of very vulnerable people with kidney disease who, if they caught COVID, would be very likely to have a bad case. So it's been hard to literally find the physical space to give these infusions. You don't want to put them, again, with vulnerable people. 
And what do we know about the availability of these drugs? The government has bought a bunch of doses of this one and another similar drug, but what do we know on that front? The last number I saw was that 80% of the drugs the government had bought are still sitting on shelves. And outgoing Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar was very upset about this. He's been haranguing people for weeks trying to get more people to take these drugs. But again, we're talking about drugs that are difficult to administer. It's also hard unless patients are asking for these drugs themselves. Usually treatment starts when someone shows up at a hospital. These have to be given before that. Karen, you did also recently write an article with one of your colleagues there at USA Today about the origins Mm -hmm. of COVID-19. The first case of COVID in the U.S. was found in January 2020. So we're here, we're at a one-year mark, maybe a little sooner, right, depending on what they say when it really came to the United States and all. But there's a team of scientists from the WHO that are going to China, that are going to look for the origins of this. I mean, it's so important to find that out. One of the things that struck me so much is how little we've actually learned in the last year. There was a flurry of information in the first month or two, and then it's essentially stopped. Some people blame China for that. They did go in and clean up the seafood market where this is believed to have reached people for the first time. There's no evidence left there. So this group from the World Health Organization is going into China. They're in Wuhan at the moment, although I think they may still be in quarantine in their hotel. But they're going to go look around to see what they can see physically there, to talk to researchers who went to the site early on and, and who have been examining this case for the last year. Now, we know that the leading theory, obviously, is that it came from bats. It crossed over into the human population at some point. This is what they're there to study. This is what they're there to look into. There has been a lot made, you know, a lot of people saying, could it have been engineered or these uh, things called gain of function research experiments, you know, where people fooling around with a similar virus and then it leaked. That's not really the prevailing theory, but there's no evidence to suggest it wasn't that either. So these are all the things that they're kind of looking into. It is theoretically possible for a scientist to engineer a bacterium like this, but it's extremely difficult. And the scientists I talked to said, you know, in some ways they wish they had this much power that the public is overestimating their ability to manipulate these viruses. And again, it is theoretically possible, but very unlikely, they say, that this was an engineered virus. And also, we don't like to think about random chance in our lives, but really that this would certainly very likely have come about simply by random mutations in the virus in a bat. It may have passed through another animal first, but they don't know yet which animal that might have been. One of the things that we don't really do, though, is keep track of coronaviruses and constantly sequence their genomes, it seems like. You made mention in your article that we do things with certain things like the flu viruses, like the bird flu, things like that. If something changes there, we're going to know about it right away. But with coronaviruses, we weren't really doing that work. So that's kind of an important step that we'll have to do or have to install so that we can keep track of these. A lot of scientists are talking about that, the need to step up surveillance. And new incoming President Biden just announced yesterday that the U.S. is going to rejoin the World Health Organization and put a lot of emphasis, encourage the World Health Organization to step up its surveillance activities and pay more attention to these kinds of things. Exactly. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Vincent Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.